Thank you very much, Father. Uh, thanks to you and thanks to Kelsey Wanless for the invitation to speak tonight. Um, I'm really grateful for this parish and for the school here uh, where my daughters go, and so uh, it's an honor and, and pleasure uh, to be here. Uh, I'll probably talk for about 40 minutes, maybe 45 at the top, just to give you a sense of, of uh, how long we'll be here before the Q&A begins. Uh, I was struggling a bit with the title for the talk, and the one I came up with, I, in hindsight, I think doesn't fit that well. Probably some, a better uh, title would have been something like uh, Freud uh, and his influence. Um, but anyway, uh, I don't think that matters uh, so much, so we'll just uh, we'll begin here. Let's see. Can you hear me okay? Okay. In Sigmund Freud, we encounter a thinker whose influence on our culture of the last 100 years would be difficult to exaggerate. Celebrated 20th century anthropologist Ashley Montague proclaimed Freud to have made, quote, the most insightful contribution to our understanding of human nature in the history of humanity. <laughs> Catholic philosopher Peter Kreft, less of a fan than Montague, still tells us that, quote, probably no thinker since Jesus has influenced the thoughts and lives of more people living in the Western world today than Sigmund Freud. Whether you have read a word of Freud yourself or have written a single check to a therapist following the psychoanalytic approach founded by Freud, we all live in a culture that has been deeply shaped by Freud's ideas. What were those ideas? One of the best ways uh, to get into a thinker is to pose a series of simple questions. In what does happiness or the good life consist? What are the obstacles to happiness? And how are those obstacles overcome? In the course of seeing how a thinker answers these questions, we learn a lot about his thoughts on other things, too, on the nature of human beings, on society, on God, on the cosmos, etc. I suggest, then, that we pose these simple questions to Freud. But before doing so, it will prove helpful as background to see how the ancient and medieval philosophers answered these questions. The great thinkers of classical antiquity, such as Plato and Aristotle, answered the question, in what does happiness consist, by focusing on what is distinctive about human beings, our reason or rational capacity. For them, it would have been absurd to think that the good or happy life consists in the satisfaction of those desires or appetites we have in common with non-human animals, the beasts. Such a bestial account of the good for human beings was beneath contempt. Rather, human happiness consists in the fulfillment of our rational capacity, in acts of theoretical wisdom by which we come to know the truth about the cosmos, its causes, and man's place within it, and acts of practical wisdom by which we conduct our lives in accordance with right reason's grasp of what is truly good and honorable conduct for human beings. The obstacles to human happiness were anything that stood in the way of what truly fulfills our rational nature. 
a chief obstacle being unruly animal appetites and passions that drive us to act contrary to reason's grasp of what is good and honorable. Overcoming the chief obstacle to happiness required acquiring the virtues by which our passions and animal appetites are brought into conformity with and successfully governed by reason. Acquiring the virtues required that we be brought up well in good habits, that we be habituated in the virtues from an early age. And being habituated in the virtues required that we have good parents and the support of a healthy society or culture that encouraged us to act in accordance with the virtues and discouraged us to act contrary to them. Such encouragement and discouragement from parents and society was crucial because before acquiring the virtues, our unruly passions and appetites push us in quite a different direction. We thus need discipline in order to, for, to form our conscience and direct our action so that we can eventually acquire the virtuous habits by which we overcome the chief obstacle to happiness. Good parents and a healthy culture are absolutely critical for human beings to overcome the obstacles to happiness and to attain the good life. The difference between good parents and bad ones, between a good society and a bad one, is whether they habituate the young in virtue, whether they encourage virtue and discourage vice. The great medieval doctors of the church, such as St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas, were in basic agreement with Plato and Aristotle, but they made some important additions in light of divine revelation. A life in pursuit of wisdom and lived in accord with reason and natural virtue could bring us a kind of imperfect happiness at the natural level, but only union with God and the beatific vision could bring perfect happiness completely satisfying the deepest longing of the human heart. The obstacle to happiness, then, was not only unruly passions and animal appetites, but sin. Indeed, the unruliness of the appetites could itself be at least partially explained by the stain of original sin, with personal sin taking us away from that friendship with God that can alone culminate in perfect happiness. While agreeing with the philosophers of antiquity that overcoming the obstacles to happiness required habituation in virtue by good parents and a good society, the overcoming of sin and union with God in perfect happiness required also the gift of God's grace, enabling us to confess our sins and to turn back to God. Now, a key thing to note about Sigmund Freud's answers to our questions about happiness is that whether he is aware of it or not, he turns the classical and Christian pictures completely upside down. For Freud, happiness consists not in friendship or union with God. Freud was an atheist. Nor does it consist in the fulfillment of what is distinctive about man, our rational capacity, in acts of wisdom and virtue. Rather, for Freud, happiness consists in the satisfaction of those appetites what he calls instincts that we share with the beasts. Every instinct has a source, an aim, and an object. There we go. The source 
is always some bodily need whose mechanism results in a buildup of tension. The aim of the instinct is the release of that tension. The object of an instinct is that by means of which the tension is released. The release of tension is felt to be pleasurable. And for Freud, that's what happiness is, the experience of pleasure due to the gratification of our animal instincts. As Freud puts it, quote, what decides the purpose of life is simply the program of the pleasure principle. This principle dominates the operation of the mental apparatus from the start. Rooted in the part of the person that Freud calls the id, our animal instincts are, for Freud, the driver behind all that we want and all that we do. Freud singles out two instincts as especially important for understanding human happiness and unhappiness, the sex instinct and the aggressive instinct. The sex instinct, which I will also call libido, seems to be behind just about everything for Freud. It is the satisfaction of this instinct that yields the greatest pleasure and that provides the pattern, measure, or standard for our conception of and search for happiness. As Freud puts it, one of the forms, quote, one of the forms in which love manifests itself, sexual love, has given us our most intense experience of an overwhelming sensation of pleasure and has thus furnished us with a pattern for our search for happiness, quote. The satisfaction of libido, Freud tells us again, affords man the strongest experiences of satisfaction and in fact provides him with the prototype of all happiness. Whereas the ancients and medievals would recognize a place for sexual pleasure as governed by the virtues of temperance and chastity, sexual pleasure was for them far down the list in the hierarchy of goods for human beings. They would have thought it positively insane to elevate the gratification of libido to the highest good and prototype of human happiness. Freud, by contrast, not only places the gratification of libido at the pinnacle of human happiness, he also contends that humanity's interest in what we might call the higher things is actually the libido's attempt to gratify itself, even though we are not typically aware of it. Thus, Freud explains everything from our interest in philosophy and science to our appreciation of beauty and art and nature to the formation of the family, to our love of brothers and sisters and friends, even to the selfless love of neighbor as embodied by someone like St. Francis of Assisi, he explains all of these things as at bottom attempts to satisfy the sex instinct. All of these goods, the ancients and medieval, medievals would rank higher than the goods of gratifying libido. For Freud, they are either a means to gratify libido or are something we take interest in only because the libido is denied what it really wants. An example of the first sort, where a higher pursuit is explained as a means to satisfy libido, can be found in Freud's account of the origin of the family. Quote, in his ape-like prehistory, man had adopted the habit of forming families, and the member of his family of members of his family were probably his first helpers. One may suppose that the founding of families was connected with the fact 
that a moment came when the need for genital satisfaction no longer made its appearance like a guest who drops in suddenly and after his departure is heard of no more for a long time, but instead took up its quarters as a permanent lodger. When this happened, the male acquired a motive for keeping the female, or speaking more generally, his sexual objects near him, while the female, who did not want to be separated from her helpless young, was obliged in their interest to remain with the stronger male. Pretty romantic stuff, isn't it? <laughs> Sometime uh, when you have a moment, uh, compare Freud's account of the origin of the family to the words of the nuptial blessing from the wedding mass. In order to appreciate the second sort of case where Freud thinks we take interest in a higher pursuit only because libido is denied what it really wants, we need to say a bit about Freud's understanding of the flexibility or fluidity of the instincts. The aim of every instinct is to release tension, resulting in pleasure. Every instinct has an object which will provide this release. Thus, the object of the sex instinct is the sort of activity we normally associate with that instinct. But if the normal object of an instinct is not available, if the aim of the instinct is blocked or inhibited, the energy or drive behind that instinct doesn't simply disappear. Rather, it seeks to find some substitute object to take the place of what it really wants and to gratify itself by means of this substitute even though the gratification will be less than it would have been had the ordinary object of the instinct been available to it. For Freud, many of the higher pursuits are substitutes for what libido really wants. This happens when the ordinary object of the instinct is denied it, either because the object is not available in the external world, or because partaking of the object would violate social conventions. When libido is directed towards higher things because its natural object has been denied it, Freud calls this sublimation. And he sees aim-inhibited libido as behind quite a lot of what the ancients and Christians would have thought of as the more profound human interests. Thus, with an eye towards our interest in science, art, and philosophy, Freud writes that, quote, Sublimation of instincts is an especially conspicuous feature of cultural development. It is what makes it possible for higher psychical activities, scientific, artistic, or ideological, to play such an important role in civilized life, end quote. With an eye towards our interest in beauty, Freud contends that, quote, the love of beauty seems a perfect example of an impulse inhibited in its aim. Beauty and attraction are originally attributes of the sexual object. Quote. Speaking of the love between parents and children, siblings and friends, Freud writes that, quote, we are obliged to describe this as aim-inhibited love or affection. Love with an inhibited aim was in fact originally fully sensual love, and it is so still in man's unconscious, end quote. Is this thing jumping around on me? There we go. Okay. All right. 
The saintly love of neighbor, too, derives ultimately from libido. As Freud explains, some people, quote, avoid the uncertainties and disappointments of genital love by turning away from its sexual aims and transforming the instinct into an impulse with an inhibited aim. Perhaps St. Francis of Assisi went furthest in thus exploiting love for the benefit of an inner feeling of happiness. What's important to see here is not only that these higher pursuits are substitutes for what libido really wants, but that they are ultimately less fulfilling than what libido really wants, according to Freud. Whereas the ancients and medievals would have found these higher pursuits more fulfilling for us rational animals, Freud sees our identity and therefore our fulfillment as more tied up with our animality than our rationality. And thus he inverts or turns upside down the classical wisdom about what is most fulfilling for human beings. Let us turn now to the second main instinct that plays such a prominent role in Freud's account of the human person and human happiness, the aggressive instinct. Freud writes, quote, Men are not gentle creatures who want to be loved and who at the most can defend themselves if they are attacked. They are, on the contrary, creatures among whose instinctual endowments is to be reckoned a powerful share of aggressiveness. As a result, their neighbor is for them not only a potential helper or sexual object, but also someone who tempts them to satisfy their aggressiveness on him to exploit his capacity for work without compensation, to use him sexually without his consent, to seize his possessions, to humiliate him, to cause him pain, to torture and kill him. Homo homini lupus, man is a wolf to man, who in the face of all his experience of life and history will have the courage to dispute this assertion." End quote. To be clear, aggressiveness is an instinct for Freud, the object of this instinct, the means by which the tension of the instinct is released, is an act of aggression. The satisfaction of the instinct by its object brings pleasure. Thus, just as acts of libido are pleasurable, so also are acts of aggression. Let me pause uh, to note that as a description of human tendencies as we find them in our fallen state of original sin, a Christian might well think that Freud is a lot closer to the truth than some modern philosophers, such as Rousseau, who seem to think that human beings are naturally gentle and benevolent creatures, and that actions and desires to the contrary are only the result of the corrupting influence of civilization. Rousseau's Pollyannish view, of course, only raises the question of why civilization would be so corrupting in the first place if the people that make it up are by nature so gentle and benevolent. The Christian doctrine that the human condition is a fallen one seems to provide a more accurate and realistic appraisal of the tendencies we are born with than Rousseau's. And Freud's description of our sexual and aggressive instincts, though entirely secular, would seem to fit at least somewhat the way a Christian might think of our tendencies in our fallen condition apart from grace. But here it is important to observe a massive difference between Freud and the Christian view. 
For the Christian, as for the great minds of classical antiquity, to act without restraint on one's sexual and aggressive appetites is a path to misery. Humans are not beasts, and so no human can be truly happy by acting like a beast. For Freud, by contrast, happiness would actually be advanced were it possible to act without restraint on our sexual and aggressive instincts. Thus, Freud imagines what would happen if the societal prohibitions against acting on these instincts were lifted. If one imagines, quote, if one imagines the prohibitions lifted, if then one may take any woman one pleases as a sexual object, if one may without hesitation kill one's rival for her love or anyone else who stands in one's way, if too one can carry off any of the other man's belongings without asking leave, how splendid, what a string of satisfactions one's life would be, end quote. For Freud, being able to gratify these instincts without restraint really would advance the cause of happiness, quite the opposite on the classical and Christian view. But does Freud think happiness is possible? Here we come to the second and third of our guiding questions. What are the obstacles to happiness, and how are these obstacles overcome? Freud's answer is that there are significant obstacles to happiness, and these obstacles cannot be overcome. Freud is a pessimist about our prospects for achieving happiness. At most, we can reduce our degree of unhappiness. Some of Freud's prescriptions for reducing unhappiness are extraordinarily influential and consequential for our contemporary culture. But before getting to them, Let's take a look at what Freud sees as the obstacles to happiness and why he thinks these obstacles are insurmountable. Freud initially identifies three main sources of suffering or unhappiness. Quote, we are threatened with suffering from three directions, from our own body, which is doomed to decay and dissolution, and which cannot even do without pain and anxiety as warning signals from the ex external world, which may rage against us with overwhelming and merciless forces of destruction, and finally from our relations to other men. It is no wonder if, under the pressure of these possibilities of suffering, men are accustomed to moderate their claims to happiness. If a man thinks himself happy merely to have escaped unhappiness or to have survived his suffering, and if in general, the task of avoiding suffering pushes that of obtaining pleasure into the background." End quote. Here Freud identifies our bodies, the natural world, and our relation to other people as sources of suffering. But another major source of suffering emerges as well, namely civilization and the restrictions that civilization imposes on the gratification of our sexual and aggressive instincts by means of its laws and moral codes. For the ancients and medievals, human beings were naturally social, even political animals, and so flourishing for them meant being a part of society. Moreover, one of the key purposes of society and its laws was to make human beings good, to habituate them in the virtues. For Freud, By contrast, 
We join together in civilization primarily to protect ourselves from the hostile forces of nature. Quote, it was because of these dangers with which nature threatens us that we came together and created civilization. For the principal task of civilization is to defend us against nature. There are the elements which seem to mock at all human control. The earth which quakes and is torn apart and buries all human life and its works. Water which deluges and drowns everything in a turmoil. Storms which blow everything before them. There are diseases, and finally there is the painful riddle of death, against which no medicine has yet been found, nor probably will be. With these forces, nature rises up against us, majestic, cruel, and, and inexorable. She brings to our mind once more our weakness and helplessness, which we thought to escape through the work of civilization." The threats posed by the natural world are so significant that without the help of civilization to defend us against nature, our lives would be short and miserable. But there is a catch-22. For civilization is also a cause of unhappiness. We cannot avoid misery without civilization, but neither can we be happy as a part of civilization. Why can't we be happy as a part of civilization? Well, the reason was alluded to above. Acting without restraint on our sexual and aggressive instincts is incompatible with the survival of civilization. Thus, civilization forces us to restrain and repress these instincts. But to restrain and repress these instincts is to deprive ourselves of what would make us happy. Such repression re results, at a minimum, in our leading frustrated lives. But Freud thinks that for many people, it also results in their suffering from feelings of guilt, as well as from depression, neuroses, and other psychological disorders. By what means does civilization restrain and repress our instincts? One way, of course, is through its laws. We have laws that prohibit and punish things like aggravated assault, an expression of the aggressive instinct. And civilizations used to, and to some extent still do, have laws that prohibit and punish various expressions of the sex instinct. Another way civilization restrains our instincts is through society's moral codes. Morality for Freud is a purely conventional matter. There is no natural moral law written into the fabric of things. But there are norms of behavior adopted by societies whose ultimate motivation is that they are needed to protect civilization from the adverse effects on it were people to act on their instincts without restraint. These norms are learned by children at the feet of their parents and educators. Children are rewarded for behavior in keeping with the norms and punished for behavior that violates the norms. Children experience being rewarded as love and affirmation, which they find pleasurable. They experience punishment as the withdrawal of love and affirmation, which they find painful. Eventually, children internalize the norms of behavior taught by their parents. In a psychological system Freud calls the superego, what we might call conscience. With the development of the superego, they no longer need a parent to reward or punish them. Rather, they reward themselves through feelings of pride when they act in accordance with the norms they have been taught, and punish themselves with uncomfortable feelings of guilt 
when they violate the norms they have been taught. The mechanism by which the superego punishes the self or ego for violating the internalized norms is especially interesting. Recall that when an instinct is denied its ordinary object, it does not simply disappear. Rather, it seeks to expend itself on some substitute object. The laws and norms of society, as we've seen, deny the ordinary object of the aggressive instinct, some act of aggression against another person. According to Freud, what is happening when the superego punishes the self or ego for transgressing the norms of behavior is that, is that the very aggression that would have been released on another person is turned back against the self. Quote, what means does civilization employ in order to inhibit the aggressiveness which opposes it, to make it harmless, to get rid of it, perhaps? What happens to him to render his desire for aggression innocuous? Something very remarkable which we should never have guessed and which is nevertheless quite obvious. His aggressiveness is interjected, internalized. It is, in point of fact, sent back to where it came from. That is, it is directed towards his own ego. There it is taken over by a portion of the ego which sets itself over against the rest of the ego as superego and which now in the form of conscience is ready to put into action against the ego the same harsh aggressiveness that the ego would have liked to satisfy upon other extraneous individuals. The tension between the harsh superego and the ego that is subjected to it is called by us the sense of guilt." End quote. Have you ever heard someone say to another who is feeling guilty about something, don't beat yourself up? Well, that is exactly what Freud thinks the feeling of guilt is, beating oneself up, aggression against the self. Freud's account of conscience here is not original. Friedrich Nietzsche, whom you will hear about next week, had the same idea before Freud, and maybe others too, I don't know. But I suspect that it is Freud who popularized this beating oneself up understanding of conscience. Civilization, then, is a source of unhappiness for Freud, both because it forces us to deny the gratification of our instincts and because, through the development of the superego or conscience, we feel guilty when we transgress or desire to transgress the behavioral norms that civilization imposes. Here, it is worth quoting Freud at length, I think, on civilization as a source of unhappiness, to just give you a flavor. Quote, it is remarkable that little as men are able to exist in isolation, they should nevertheless feel as heavy a burden, the sacrifices which civilization expects of them in order to make a communal life possible. Another. It seems that every civilization must be built up on coercion and the renunciation of instinct. There is a contention that we call, that what we call our civilization is largely responsible for our misery and that we should be much happier if we give it up and return to primitive conditions. I call this contention astonishing because in whatever way we may define the concept of civilization, it is a certain fact that all the things with which we seek to protect ourselves against the threats that emanate from the sources of suffering are part of that very civilization. Just to continue a bit this, uh, with this, uh, 
If civilization imposes such great sacrifices not only on man's sexuality but on his aggressivity, we can understand better why it is hard for him to be happy in that civilization. In fact, primitive man was better off in knowing no restrictions of instinct. To counterbalance this, his, primitive man's prospects of enjoying this happiness for any length of time were very slender. Civilized man has exchanged a portion of his possibilities of happiness for a portion of security. My intention uh, is to represent the sense of guilt as the most important problem. Think about that for a second. The sense of guilt as the most important problem in the development of civilization, and to show that the price we pay for our advance in civilization is a loss of happiness through the heightening of the sense of guilt. Finally, it was discovered that a person becomes neurotic because he cannot tolerate the amount of frustration which society imposes on him in the service of its cultural ideals. I noted above that, although Freud doesn't think it possible to overcome the obstacles to happiness, he does offer proposals, consequential proposals, for reducing unhappiness. As we've seen, he thinks that moral norms are mere social conventions and that the traditional conventions contribute to unhappiness by frustrating our instincts, inducing feelings of guilt, and causing neuroses and other sorts of mental illness. It is not surprising, therefore, that Freud's proposal for reducing unhappiness is an attack on traditional moral norms, a recommendation that we remove or lower traditional moral standards. Freud is explicit about this. His attack begins with the contention that the traditional moral norms are unrealistic and impossible to satisfy. Thus he says, quote, the commandment, love thy neighbor as thyself, is the strongest defense against human aggressiveness and an excellent example of the unpsychological proceedings of the cultural superego. The commandment is impossible to fulfill Civilization pays no attention to all this. It merely admonishes us that the harder it is to obey the precept, the more meritorious it is to do so. We Christians, I think, can agree that loving neighbor as oneself is impossible without God's grace. But impossible, absolutely speaking? Tell that to Maximilian Kolbe, Teresa of Calcutta, or Damien of Molokai. Similarly unrealistic, Freud thinks, are traditional sexual ethics. He complains that quote, the choice, this is a complaint, that the choice of a sexual object is restricted to the opposite sex, and most extragenital satisfactions are forbidden as perversions. Even heterosexual genital love, which has remained exempt from outlawry, is itself restricted by further limitations in the shape of insistence upon legitimacy and monogamy, end quote. He goes on to say, quote, everybody knows that this traditional sexual morality has proved impossible to put into execution even for quite short periods. Only the weaklings have submitted to such an extensive encroachment upon their sexual freedom. Finally, we get Freud's grand prescription for relieving at least some of the unhappiness endemic to the human condition. Quote, 
In our research into in therapy of a neurosis, we are led to make two reproaches against the superego of the individual, the conscience. In the severity of its commands and prohibitions, it troubles itself too little about the happiness of the ego in that it takes insufficient account of the resistances against obeying them. Consequently, we are very often obliged for therapeutic purposes to oppose the superego, and we endeavor to lower its demands. Exactly the same objections can be made against the ethical demands of the cultural superego. It, too, does not trouble itself enough about the facts of the mental constitution of human beings. It issues a command and does not ask whether it is possible for people to obey it. On the contrary, it assumes that a man's ego is psychologically capable of anything that is required of it, that his ego has unlimited mastery over his id, his instincts. This is a mistake, and even in what are known as normal people, the id cannot be controlled beyond certain limits. If more is demanded of a man, a revolt will be produced in him, or a neurosis, or he will be made unhappy." Quote. To relieve our unhappiness, or at least some of it, we need to give up the traditional demands of morality and conscience. But which demands can we give up, consistent with the survival of civilization? Without civilization, we will be prey to the hostile forces of nature. And without civilization's restrictions on our aggressive instinct, we will be prey to one another's aggression. Can we really afford to dispense with civilization entirely? If not, what renunciations of instinct can we lift to allow for greater happiness without the collapse of civilization? This is the direction of Freudian thought. Let me close, then, with a more explicit identification of some influences of Freudian thought on the culture of the last 100 years. I will focus on three areas of influence. The first, and most consequential, is the sexual revolution. Some of you have maybe heard that. You know about it, even if you have, don't know it by that name. What is that? The semi-gradual, the semi yet radical transformation going back to the 1960s and before, and how the dominant Western culture thinks about sex and what sorts of sexual conduct it deems healthy and socially acceptable. Not many people have wanted to lift restrictions on the aggressive instinct, right? I mean, surely that would not be consistent with the survival of civilization. But quite a lot of people have wanted to lift restrictions on the gratification of libido to the point where in the dominant culture, very few restrictions remain. Following Freud, the dominant culture has come to place sexual appetite at the very core of its understanding of who we are and has made the gratification of that appetite central to its image of human happiness. If sexual appetite is at the core of a person's identity, then any reservations about a person's sexual appetites are tantamount to an attack on that person. If the gratification of sexual appetite is the pinnacle of the happy life, then to deny anyone such gratification is to deny that person their right to the pursuit of happiness. The classical and Christian traditions would reject both of these premises. Libido is not what defines a human being, nor is its satisfaction the key to the good life. But our culture has sided with Freud against classical wisdom in these matters. 
The sexual revolution is that movement by which our culture has increasingly removed the traditional restrictions on sexual activity in the name of freedom and happiness. Yet, in my view anyway, there is reason to think the revolution has not led to freedom or happiness. What it has fostered instead is loneliness, broken homes, children raised without a mother or a father, disease, addiction to pornography, poverty, crime, mental illness, and of course, homicide. As the dominant culture has made the decision that, in order to make sexual freedom possible, we will kill, on a massive scale, the unwanted offspring of the sexual activity by which we gratify ourselves. The second influence of Freud on, on our culture we might call the therapeutic mentality. The therapeutic mentality is not meant to name the mentality of every therapist or everyone who receives therapy. Therapy done well can do a lot of good for people. Rather, the therapeutic mentality describes a mindset according to which how people feel about themselves, how they feel about themselves is more important than recognizing what is true and good. The connection to Freud can be found in Freud's general hostility to conscience. Freud opposes conscience because it is a source of, of guilt, of feeling bad about oneself. So likewise, the therapeutic mentality avoids things that might make someone uncomfortable or hurt their self-esteem. This mentality hesitates to say what's good or bad, true or false, to correct error or to admonish the sinner. When bureaucratized, the therapeutic mentality even seeks to shield people from hearing things that might make them feel bad, as we see in the priority many of today's educators and HR professionals give to ensuring that their institutions are, quote, safe spaces where no one encounters anything that will make them uncomfortable. Of course, any decent person will take concern for the feelings of others. But when the feelings of others become our overriding concern, such false sympathy becomes a vice opposed to true charity. Genuine charity wills the actual good of another, not simply that the other feel good. In contrast to Freud, the classical and Christian traditions understood that feelings of guilt or remorse when one has done wrong are a sign of health, which spurs one to conversion and to strive for virtue. The purely vicious man who does wrong without remorse, Aristotle thought to be incurable, since he does not even recognize his wrongdoing and sees no need to change. True charity takes concern for the feelings of others, but it doesn't make those feelings its top priority. Knowing how to exercise true charity in light of the feelings of others requires the virtue of prudence and is a task that has been made more difficult by the cultural emergence of the therapeutic mentality. So let me just ask quickly, uh, Father, do, do I have about another five minutes or should I? Okay, so I'll do the last one. Some interesting stuff in here. Um, all right. Finally, to the last influence of Freudian thought on our culture, what I'll call the psycho psych psychologizing mentality. What I mean by psychologizing mentality is not a mentality shared by all psychologists or all people doing work in the field of psychology. 
Rather, it is an approach to engaging, or rather, failing to engage, the beliefs of others. To see what I mean by it, it will be helpful to consider Freud's treatment of religious belief. As I mentioned above, Freud was an atheist. His primary reason for being an atheist is that he thought that the only source of knowledge is modern natural science. Since we cannot know God by means of modern natural science, we can have no knowledge of God's existence. Ergo, atheism. Of course, the claim that the only source of knowledge is modern natural science is a patently self-defeating claim. Can we know by means of modern natural science that the only source of knowledge is modern natural science? Of course not. So Freud's reason for atheism is a bad one, but that's not the main thing I want to discuss here. The thing I want to discuss here is Freud's explanation for why people believe in God. According to Freud, religious beliefs are what he calls illusions. Illusions are things people believe because they wish or want them to be true. People may not realize that their belief is based on their wish that it be true, but that is in fact the source of their belief, according to Freud. Thus, for Freud, the real explanation why people believe in God, whether they realize it or not, is that they want God to exist. Before getting back to the psychologizing mentality, I should point out that Freud's explanation of why people believe in God has absolutely no bearing on the truth of whether or not God exists. If it turns out that the real reason people believe in God is because they want God to exist, we could just as easily say that the real reason atheists don't believe in God is that they don't want God to exist. We have made absolutely no headway at all on the question of whether or not God exists. But the point I want to draw your attention to here is the nature, okay, the nature of Freud's explanation of why the believer believes. If you ask the believer why he believes that God exists, he will likely give you reason, the reasons he thinks that the proposition, God exists, is true. He'll give you his reasons for thinking it's true. He might say, for example, that he believes God exists because the world needs a cause of its existence. Or he believes that God exists because of the kinds of order we find in the world. Or he believes God exists because he has witnessed a miracle. Or he believes that God exists on the basis of having a religious experience. That's the sort of reason the believer would give for his belief. But Freud wants to say that, uh, that the real reason, the real explanation for why the believer believes is not any of the things the believer says, but rather the believer's desire that it be true. Now, I don't want to deny that our desires play a role in what we come to believe. The point here is that Freud's explanation for religious beliefs represents a certain type of explanation that ignores the reasons the believer actually gives for his belief in favor of psychological explanations, such as the believer's loves, hates, or fears that are not among the believer's reasons. The psychologizing mentality, then, is a mindset that tends to dismiss or ignore the actual reasons people give for holding a belief, explaining their belief instead in terms of often unconscious psychological motives that the persons themselves would not recognize as their reasons. This way of engaging someone's beliefs or behavior is sometimes referred to as psychoanalyzing. 
It is a decidedly unphilosophical way of proceeding since it fails to engage the actual reasons or arguments the believer gives for believing. Indeed, the psychologizing mentality can be a way of dismissing the reasons and arguments of others as irrelevant and not in need of being taken seriously. If your beliefs have ever been psychoanalyzed, you probably felt like your own reasons for believing what you believe were being dismissed. One of the influences of Freudian thought has been to make this approach to the beliefs of others more prevalent within our culture, thus degrading the quality of our engagement with ideas and with each other. Thank you. Thank you so much, Doctor. I would feel guilt and shame if I didn't thank you for everything you said today. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, just a reminder that, uh, remember, the best questions are not the ones that are huge and complex and have huge preface comments, but that are asking for clarity, uh, that are asking for an example of something. So with that, uh, any questions, and also the rule, also to repeat for the sake of our future listeners uh, what is being asked. So we'll probably do about three questions in honor of the Holy Trinity. And you wonder why I say three, but I'm just <laughs> Yeah, I, I want to elaborate just very briefly. It's interesting that Freud was a Jewish atheist, which in Judaism is not a self-contradiction, whereas an atheist Christian would be a self-contradiction. The question I have is, according to Freud, all Christians are mentally ill. Isn't that correct? Because they believe in, they have a delusional belief in the existence of God. And then the other question I want to ask is, how does Freud's Jewish background inform his morality? It's hmm. a good question. So there were clearly at least a couple questions in there. Uh, one is, uh, does Freud think that all Christians are mentally ill? I, I don't know if he would put it uh, quite that uh, way. Uh, he might. I, I should say, I mean, I'm not actually an expert on Freud. Maybe I should have said that at the beginning of the talk. <laughs> Probably would have fit out before I began. Um, but I mean, he, he, certainly, he, he certainly thinks that uh, if you believe in God, as Christians do, that um, you, you, know, you believe in something that's not true. And he thinks that you're typically not aware of the reasons for your believing it. Your real re or your, what's actually behind your belief, which is this, this wish that God exists, rather than uh, anything else that you might point to. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't know if, uh, yeah, if that would, he would classify that as, as mental illness exactly, but there's something um, messed up in a way going on, he would say, yeah. And then your, your other question was about, uh, about you know, Freud's Jewishness and how it connects to his views about morality and so forth. I mean, I, uh, I, I certainly, I, I don't know his biography super well. I, I certainly think it, it informs, you know, both Judeo-Christian morality understood, you know, imperfectly informs his understanding of what traditional morality is. Now, he rejects, all, he rejects traditional morality. He rejects anything like natural law or divine law as a basis for, for, uh, for morality. Morality for him, I think, is basically a, a social convention that is a con construct of societies, and it's basically designed to protect civilization from disintegration. Um, so maybe I'll leave, yeah, good at that. Thank you.
I don't know if you. <laughs> How would you say that Freud justifies writing out all this stuff instead of just going out and satisfying his libido and aggression? <laughs> <laughs> How does Freud justify writing all this stuff rather than going out and satisfying his libido and aggression? Uh, he doesn't want to get arrested, I guess. <laughs> At the very least, right? You know. Uh, and I mean, I, I think he enjoys it, right? He talks in, in part of a passage that you know just wasn't time to include. But I mean, you know, he there 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 are people, and, and probably he's one, he would say he was one of them, who have such a kind of constitution or disposition or temperament that they can take quite a bit of a pleasure in sort of intellectual work. Now, the ultimate driver behind uh, the, the interest in intellectual work is uh, libido, right? But, um, you know, libido, as he says in other places, trying to satisfy that has its downsides too, right? Um, so that's what I would say. He didn't want to get arrested, and he, 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 I think he enjoys it. Yeah. Yeah. Gail. Yeah. This, is, this question, it's same, different part of the same coin. How does one actually get helpful therapeutic um, psychological assistance today? And how does one, as a Catholic, become part of that solution as I have a younger son interested in that and I'm afraid? Yeah. So, so the question is, you know, how does one find, uh, you know, sound uh, therapy uh, uh, these days? You know, especially, you know, as a, as a Catholic, or how to, and how does, you know, a, a Catholic who might want to get into that uh, get into it? And um, I, there, there are, uh, there are, are Catholic and, and Christian uh, therapists who, whose. Uh, whose, whose worldview techniques and so forth are informed uh, by their Christian beliefs. Uh, there are even, you know, the, even schools training them, their practices of individuals and groups of therapists. And so I would say, uh, you know, look for one of those practices, look for one of those therapists, ask around. I, you probably know people who, who could direct you to, uh, you know, or, or someone who, who wanted to, to find a good therapist there around. Uh, and, and for, a, for a, a Catholic who was interested in, in going into to therapy as a profession, find out about these places where, you know, talk, talk to other Christian therapists and find out where to go to get a sound training. Would be my suggestion. Well, yes, I, I guess I've always been that, or curious as to why Freud, who has um, had mental training as a physician, and who I interpret as essentially a philosopher, and certainly someone to be reckoned with intellectually, but why did he, and how did he obtain such influence, and why was, why, why was there this assumption that somehow what he wrote was, quote, the science? Hmm. Yeah. Uh, why did why does Freud have such influence, and why were, did people think that you know what he wrote was the science? Um, I mean, there are a lot of maybe a lot of different uh, parts of the answer to that question. I mean, people have thought 
since the dawn of science that a lot of or in, and before did a lot of things for science that you know turn out to be pretty hokey you know uh, but they but 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 they carry a kind of authority because you know they they climb claim the authority of science for themselves um, I think a lot of a lot of uh, scientists have you know, thought that many of Freud's ideas, you know, are sort of discredited. They're they're not many of them are not falsifiable. You know, so they don't pass certain kinds of, of uh, methodological muster for counting as a genuine scientific theory. Uh, they're not they're the 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 basis for his various experiments. You know, there weren't there weren't controls. You know, whether the psycho psychoanalyst would, analytic therapy helped people or or not. You know, the sample size. Though he was basing all these claims on was small, there weren't controls. We don't even know whether you know just having somebody you know just wait a couple of years and see how they feel you know might have come out with just as good outcomes. Um, uh, there's, um, but why why was he? Why did he gain such a following uh, in the 20th century? I let, I cut out a, a, a sentence in there. I, I said you know our, our culture we've. We live in a culture that has been shaped by Freud, right? Um, and, and one way to think of this is that Freud, you know, somebody like Freud, this this great mind that then has this massive influence on a culture. Uh, another way of, of thinking about it is that the culture, for whatever reason, just in the air, has certain sort of foundational ideas and principles, and that a, that a thinker like Freud just became a kind of paradigmatic expression of those ideas, right? Now, it may be that there's some truth to both of these, right? That he was expressing stuff that was kind of in the, in the, uh, in the air for whatever reason, but then also he had an enormous influence, and the combination of those two things, I think, uh, uh, maybe accounts for the kind of influence he had, which is remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. Let us say a quick prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, amen. Holy Father, we thank you for the great desire you have given us for goodness, truth, and beauty. We ask you to help us to always see that those desires come from your very nature, and that they will find fulfillment and happiness in you, hopefully beginning here on earth and lasting forever in heaven. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. One more round of applause for Dr. Gray.